0: The podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire, one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor
0: Quentin. And welcome to our 56th episode of the Naughty Cast entitled The Lion's Den: An analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 7, in which Tyrion is finally reunited with his beloved father figure, Tywin, friend to the small folk, and Emmits and Mai's very favorite character, that Tywin Lannister. He's just my absolute fucking favorite. Same for you, I'm assuming.
1: Of course. No sarcasm detected. None at
0: all. So this episode is brought to you by our small council, as always, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, still love that name. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, also love that name too, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, and our newest members of the Small Council, Lord Micah, Word of the West and the Kraken's Bane, and Lord the Gym that was promised. Thank you, counselors, very much, and welcome to Micah, Roxana, James. It's a pleasure to have you along with us. Thank you, counselors,
1: as always, and welcome to the new ones. It always just blows me away how many people are willing to support us on the Patreon. That's just great. It you know yeah. makes me happy not only about the content we're creating, but that so many people are still excited about this universe we love so dearly. So all sentimentality aside before we get to a very unsentimental chapter, <laughs> thank you all very much.
0: Absolutely. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from Snark Knight, a sworn sword, who asks, Hi guys, as we step closer to Tywin being on stage... Do you have anything to say about the extra content in the World of Ice and Fire sample chapter on the Westerlands, which features a few deleted scenes from Tytos and Tywin, especially on the war crimes against House Rain? Yes, this is a very interesting subject when it comes to the Lannisters and Tywin, and uh, Tywin specifically. So, you want to take us through the history of this, sir?
0: Sure. So for those of you guys who don't know, an extended Westerlands chapter was published on George R. R. Martin's website back in, I want to say, 2014, right around or right after the release of the World of Ice and Fire itself. And it's still available. So if you guys are interested and you're one of our patrons, go ahead and click the link here if you're reading our show notes and go ahead and read it because it's actually really, really good. It adds a bit of context and a bit more history. You can see some of the elements where George and his editors trimmed the manuscript down a little bit and kind of shortened events and condensed some of the history. But if you want to get the full out fire and bloodish type version of the history of the Westerlands, it's it's really good. So I, I strongly recommend you guys do check it out. So Tywin's war crimes in that chapter, that extended chapter, (laughs) there are so many goddamn war crimes that Tywin Lannister commits. And you really get the sense, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in the main cast itself, but you really get the sense that George really wanted to kind of augment this idea that Tywin was a nasty piece of work from the get-go. And here's the thing. So the major thing about all of this and about all of Tywin's crimes when it comes to House Reign, the Reigns of Castamere, was Tywin like 30, 35, 40 years old? Was he, you know, a 50-year-old man as we see in A Game of Thrones? No, he's he's not. He's actually like 18, 19 years old when he's doing all of this horrendous, awful fucking war shit, as we're going to be talking about here momentarily. So, what are the war crimes that time commits in this chapter? Well, the first thing is that he beheads Lord Waldron and Tarbeck and his sons for the rebellion, the reign Tarbeck rebellion, which, fair enough, right? I mean, we kind of give Jon Snow props for beheading Janos Lynn because of his treason and his unwillingness to obey Jon Snow's orders. That That reads kind of fair, right? It, it, except for that he didn't... Just kill Lord Walder and Tarbek and his sons. He killed Tarbek's cousins, nephews, and his son-in-law. He kills every goddamn person wearing a Tarbek sigil on his surcoat. And then he impales the heads of Lord Tarbek and his sons on the Tarbek sigil and marches on Tarbek Hall. And he does this all in order to frighten the castle into surrendering so why does he want the castle to surrender, right? He wants to, you know, restore the Tarbecks to the king's peace and to the Lannister rule, right? That's exactly what he wants. No, no, he fucking doesn't want that. He wants Tarbeck Hall to surrender so he can burn it to the ground, which is exactly what he does, but not before his men, namely Sir Amory Lorch, tosses down Rohane, that is Lady Ellen Tarbeck's three-year-old son, down a well. It's a really interesting note, as we're probably going to be talking about here when we get closer into a Storm of Swords, but there is a note here about, and no one is really sure if it was Tywin who ordered the child to be tossed down the well or if that was just the actions of, of Sir Amory Lorch. And my response to that is, oh my fucking God. Like, it doesn't fucking matter if Tywin was not the one who gave the order. The fact that Tywin didn't punish Sir Amory Lorch for killing a fucking three year old means that he essentially is giving his assent to the to the action, even if he didn't explicitly order it. Now, in my opinion, he probably likely ordered it because he's a fucking piece of shit. Am I getting ahead of myself, Emmett? I, mean, I feel like I'm just like just going on a rant already about Tywin Lannister.
1: It's hard to know when to stop because this is how Martin writes Tywin. As you're getting across in this chapter, Lord Tywin does not believe in half measures, as the quote goes. And every stage in his life, as you say, from a very young age reflects that. And you can can see a basis for it in his perspective on his father, Titus and why Titus allowed his his bannermen to walk all over him. But it quickly took on its own logic, its, its own horrible pattern. It became mean and ends for Tywin that's I think one of the points of the character of Tywin Lannister is how using terror strategically quickly just swallows you up and before you know it you're using terror at every opportunity because it's the only tool in your toolbox it's the only way Tywin knows how to govern and that I think ultimately is what turns all his victories into ash and yeah as you say it doesn't really matter if he ordered Amory Lords to kill that kid because he gave his silent assent to and I don't even know if he had to there's all these little moments when Tywin just gets to wash his hands clean and let his pet monsters do the work whether you're talking about exactly. Henry Lorch, Gregor Clegane, the Bloody Mummers. And this is, of course, a, a challenge that all leaders face, and even the leaders we might like more than Tywin aren't free of this. Stannis has some absolute monsters working yep. for him as well, that he does not kick out of his camp, people mm-hmm. like the Florence or Clayton Suggs. But with Tywin, it's, it's such a strong note in his character. And as you say, Martin goes out of his way in this World of Ice and Fire chapter and in this chapter to emphasize this as the center of Tywin's character yep. and the center of Tywin's political and military history.
0: Yeah, there's a moment that's mentioned very briefly early in that chat, earlier in that chapter where it's mentioned that Titus Lannister kind of restrains Tywin from sending back um, the the Tarbeck hostages in three pieces. And that's like the one moment where you have Tywin in restraint, but that the only reason why he's, he's restrained there is because Titus Lannister still has enough authority to essentially be able to say Tywin, you can't you can't do that. You can't kill people and divide them into three pieces and send them back to the relatives. That's that's bad. That's very bad, Mr. Tywin. You need to settle down here. But by this point, he's 18, 19 years old and his father is already weak and ineffectual. But that's no reason. At the But at the same time, I think it's a very important point that Martin emphasizes that because Tytos Lannister was weak and his Lord's Bannerman took advantage of him, that doesn't justify the extent of the horror and brutality that and Lannister visited on his enemies, especially the reigns of the Tarbes, So to kind of like transition back into the more crimes, cause there's more crimes. Of course, there's always more crimes when it comes to time and last year. So after Tarbeck Hall is taken, he kills that three-year-old son, three-year-old kid burns the, burns Tarbeck Hall to the ground. He then heads off, heads off to Castamere. And most people are are aware of this, but for the five or six of you who have not read the world, of Ice and fire, shame on you. Go ahead and read it. He, at Castamere itself, all of the reigns and the surviving Tarbex flee down into the mines under the castle and they tell Tywin that they have enough food to hold out for three or five years, I think. One of the two numbers off that camera off the top of my head. And from there, they're like, we, we will never surrender. We will never surrender. And so what Lord Tywin just says, fuck it. OK, fine. So he seals all of the people, all 300 people that the rains have brought inside the caves to protect themselves from the Lannisters under the castle itself after they refuse to surrender. And then... And then, as is famously recounted in the World of Ice and Fire, in the main series itself, he redirects his stream to drown every last man, woman, and child in the mines. 300 people in total. And then of course, because it's Tywin Lannister after the rains have all died, and there's like this I think there's a mention, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of those things that just stays in my mind. But about how they could hear like the people screaming like from the distance, from outside of the mines itself. After all that is done, he burns the castle Castamere to the ground. So that's who Tywin Lannister is. I mean, we uh, there's, there's a segment of the fandom which thinks that Tywin Lannister is strong and effective and he's a pragmatic and he's brutal. Yeah, sure, he's brutal. He does bad things, but he does it for like the greater cause and the greater good. But how does drowning a three-year-old kid work for the greater good? How does drowning every man, woman, and child, 300 people in total in the minds of Castamere, how does that work for the greater good? And it doesn't. And it's something we're going to be talking about here, especially in this chapter as we're progressing into it, is that Tywin Lannister is not necessarily this pragmatic, brutally-minded person who happens to have a good end state in mind. But rather, he's very much influenced by the personal. And the personal for him means that he is completely inundated with these feelings that he's being slighted or his family's honors being slighted. It started with his father, Tytos, and how his Lord's Spannerman took advantage of him. He takes that feeling, turns that into really, really brutal acts that supersede anything that we really see in any of the other lords.
1: Tyrone's trying to fill a hole inside of himself that's never going to be filled, especially after Joanna died and especially after he decided to blame Tyrion for it. right. And I think what Martin is trying to do is to break down that cold, hard face of authority that Tywin presents, that everything I'm doing is for the greater good, and it's because I'm in some way a better class of person than you. I'm a Lannister. I know what is best inherently. And the problem is Tywin flips back and forth between that pretense and savagely acting on the behalf of no greater good than himself or even arguably his family. So I think this is in part Martin reacting against a lot of the faces of authority I'm sure he saw when he was growing up, when he was becoming skeptical about American institutions and the government and the media and the military and probably carrying that forward to a character like Tywin because Tywin is the establishment, you know, more than really anyone else we meet in the series. Tywin represents the conventional wisdom, the man who's always been in charge, who has access to every key, who has access to every lever of power he's ever wanted in his life, and this is what he's chosen to do with it, the most you know, respected and feared man of his generation. This is how he behaves. So I think what Martin is suggesting there is maybe the standards of respect in this society, in this generation, are horribly flawed if this is the man they put in charge. And he stamps that all over Tywin's backstory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tywin Lannister is very much all wrapped up in that personal side. And I think it is, it is an indictment on Westerosi culture and on Westerosi nobility to a greater extent that they all look up to this guy as being this, not wonderful, but this, the... The ideal that, that all the Westerosi nobles aspire to.
1: Even, though, even the ones that hate him are like, you got to respect that Tywin Lannister. He's a man right. to be dealt with. And I think, the, I think the author is trying to show that they're wrong.
0: Right. So right before we get into this chapter itself, we just wanted to remind folks, if you have not already listened to it, our episode about our predictions for Game of Thrones season eight is now out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF. And for $10 and above, you are welcome to ask us questions like Sir Snark Knight did here and we'll... And we will have to answer these questions on the regular cast. So check us out again at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF. But enough about that. We've been we were on a time and streak and we're just going to stay right on this time and streak. So here is the synopsis for a Game of Thrones Tyrion 7. And with Lord Grant Me Strength, I'm about to reintroduce you all to Captain Dye's shitting himself, Lord Tywin of House Lannister. Tyrion Lannister arrives at the camp of one of the two Lannister armies we might have mentioned last week. We did mention it. But he's not alone. He's arrived in style with Bronn the Sellsword and an entourage of classy clansmen come down from the Vale of Arryn. Is classy clansmen problematic? I maybe should workshop that line a little bit more. Anyways, as I was saying, Tyrion's arrived with 300 merry companions in the form of the Stone Crows, the Moon Brothers, the Black Ears, and the Burned Men. Meanwhile, Tyrion left Gunthor back to raise the rest of the clans on his behalf. And Tyrion is very curious about what his lord father, the richest man of Westeros, would think of all these mountain clansmen in their dinted armor and wearing their skins of animals. Maybe it'd be best if, you know, he goes down alone, right guys? Right? No, of course not. Best for Tyrion, son of Tywin, said Ulf, who spoke for the Moon Brothers. Shagga said of Dolph agrees, stating that if Tyrion means to cheat them, he'll cut off Tyrion's manhood and feed it to the goats, Tyrion fishes for him, sort of impatiently. Tyrion tries his best, you would question my honor? Mine? But the clansmen aren't having it. They are more wise than we give them credit for. They're going down with him, whether he wills it or not. Well, not all of them, Tyrion specifies. He's only going to take a select few with him onto the camp. Chela, Shaga, Khan, Ulf, and Timid representatives from each clan, and then he gallops off. As Tyrion rides down the hill, he thinks about how absurd the clan system of government was. Everyone participated in council session, even the women... How fucking absurd. Besides, that's why they hadn't been able to rise up and take on the Veil Lords. Am I right, bros? Right? It's because of the women having a voice and not the violent abrogation of land rights by the government and the strict racialist delineation of good and bad Veilmen and how that political infrastructure strangely, strangely resulted in the bad Veilmen being forced on up into the mountains and away from the good fertile valley floor. Did I do a good enough mix of libertarian and socialist talking points, Emmett? You've come so far, Jeff, kind of. (laughs) I can only come so far. Put that <laughs> on the tombstone, buddy. Look at that. I can only come so far. But in the end, it doesn't even matter. Anyhow, Bron decides to tag along with Tyrion because, of course, it's, it's fucking Bron. Whatever. Tyrion then thinks back to the clansmen trailing him, thinking through each of these clansmen before finally reflecting on Timid, son of Timid, a war chief of the Burned Men. Now normally these clansmen were pretty fearsome who mortified their flesh with fire, and I'm speaking specifically about the burn men here, because, okay, and that sounds really painful, but okay, I guess, but Timot distinguished himself by no, not just mortifying like his arm or his leg or something like not, or something like that. Instead, he took a white-hot knife and burned out his eye, because, oh my God, like how the fuck oh, that's horrible. And then they made him their war chief. The party progresses down the encampment, and soon Tyrion comes up to the earthen embankment just out of the way of any crossbow bolt. Hmm, crossbow bolts. I wonder if we're going to be seeing a lot more references to this weapon as we progress through Tyrion's arc. Maybe, maybe not. We absolutely will. Anyways, Tyrion shouts up asking for the captain, and Sir Flemeth Brax shows up and is fucking astonished that it's Tyrion. He hesitantly allows Tyrion and his party to pass on into the encampment. Inside, the commoners sleep out in the open while the knights and the lords erect smaller and lesser pavilions respectively. It's 20,000 men, or near enough as mixed no matter, and Tyrion, somewhat similarly to Catelyn, makes notice of all the Westerland sigils affixed to the larger lordly tents. The red ox of the Presters, the brindle boar of the Craycalls, the burning tree of the Marbrands, the Badger of Lyddon. It's just your regular old army of fucking war criminals. Men-at-arms and knights shout greetings at Tyrion and his curious party, but Tyrion has his eye on the prize. His father's in Cammon. And where has his father, that motherfucking war criminal, set up shop? Why at the Inn at the Crossroads, with the burned-out remains of nearby structures surrounding the Inn? And what better way to symbolize the type of real asshole that Tywin is than to have a gibbet, hoisted on up where he has someone hanging and being eaten by crows, their face in particular? And who was this mysterious person? Why, it's none other than Masha Heddle. You remember her, whose crime was um, nothing. Not, she didn't do anything wrong, Ty, when You fucking asshole. But that's not the way that Tyrion sees it. A room, a meal, and a flagon of wine. That's all I asked. He reminded her with a sigh of reproach. I don't know, Emmet. That seems a little harsh, especially given that the poor woman had no ability to affect fucking anything, and then was subsequently murdered by Lannister goons. Am I being too hard on Tyrion?
1: It's almost as if Tywin and Tyrion are using the exact same logic to blame this poor innocent peasant woman. Uh, That can't be.
0: No, not Tyrion. He's good. He makes jokes. He's a jokey guy. Tyrion leads the party into the stables and we get some hijinks between Shagga and the stable boy about whether the stable boy will steal Shagga's horse and how he'll cut off manhoods and feed it to the goats and such. And then we're on towards our first meeting with Tywin Lannister. Tyrion asks the clansman if he could go into the inn alone, and the Lannister guardsman usher Tyrion into the inn to find Tywin in war council. And because I think this is just a, this is just, and because I think this is just excellent crisp writing on George's part, I need to read this in full because this description of Tywin Lannister is amazing. Tywin Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock and War of the West, was in his middle fifties yet hard as a man of twenty. Even seated, he was tall, with long legs, broad shoulders, a flat stomach. His thin arms were corded with muscle. When his once golden hair began to recede, he had commanded his barber to shave his head. Lord Tywin did not believe in half measures. He razored his lip and chin as well, but kept his side whiskers. Two great thickets of wiry golden hair that covered most of his cheeks from ear to jaw. His eyes were a pale green, flecked with gold. A fool more foolish than most, had once jested that even Lord Tywin's shit was flecked with gold. Some said the man was still alive, deep in the bowels of Castley Rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. Damn, George. I mean, Emmett's laughing here. I'm in... All of the way that George sets this guy Because he really, really does a fantastic job Of setting up the scene with a fantastic Physical description of Tywin Lannister And just a little teeny tiny backstory About this history about this guy In in the Bowels of Rock Which we will talk about at some length uh, As we progress through this podcast Oh, and that other war criminal, Kevin Lannister Is here too, who is fat, has a beard, and is bolding He sees Tyrion first He's quite shocked to see Tyrion But Tywin, is he shocked? No he just stares at Tyrion before, I see that the rumors of your demise were unfounded. Thank you, Tywin Twain Lannister, and I <laughs> see you too, George. I get, I get references. I like references. Well, Tyrion is all sorry to disappoint dad by not being dead, and oh no, don't get up and greet me, but thanks for going to war for me, father. Least you could do. It's really all sardonic from here on out for Tyrion. on Tyrion's end. Well, in Tywin's estimation, he didn't go to war for Tyrion. He went to war because the family's honor was at stake. And how's that war going? Well, it's been a victorious romp of cascading war crimes, according to Kevin Lannister. Tywin and Kevin have marched in turn, burning out the River Lords east of the Green Fork, while Jaime smashed the River Lords at the Golden Tooth and brought the war all the way to the doorstep of River Run. Sir Edmure Tully was taken prisoner while Lord Hoster Blackwood took the survivors from the battle and brought them inside the castle of itself himself to hold out against Lannister's siege. It's a bang-up easy Lannister victory. So far, not going to be the way for long. They just got to get the Malisters to surrender at Seaguard and Waterfray to capitulate like a coward. There's also the Pipers and the vances that are attacking the Lannister supply trains in the rear of Jaime's army. And this minor character by the name of Lord Beric Dondarrion is in the rear of Tywin's army. Oh, and there's that small, very, very, very minor matter of Rob Stark and Moat Caelan with a host at his back. Shouldn't be an issue, though. The Lannisters hold Sansa and Ned as hostages. Meanwhile, Rob is just a kid. He ain't a real threat. The real threat is... St- Dennis. Status, 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 status. I'm sorry, I got carried away. According to Tywin, not some kid who should be playing with wooden swords and probably only loves the sound of war horns. He doesn't have the stomach for real war butcher's work, am I right? No, you're not. Can't fucking wait till we get to Tyrion 8 and Catelyn 10. And now, Tyrion, Tywin and Kevin, they really need you to put a small force together to deal with Lord Beric Dondarrion's party, annoying the Lannister rear. Father, it warms my heart to think that you might entrust me with... What? 20 men? 50? Are you sure you can spare so many? Well, no matter. If I come across Thoros and Lord Beric, I shall spank them both. But first, though, Tyrion has some promises to keep. He needs swords, helms, hauberks, pikes, spearheads, maces, battle axes, gauntlets, gorges, greaves, breastplates, and wagons to. The door crashes open behind Tyrion, and a Lannister guardsman goes flying across the room like a vaudeville comedy act. In walks Shaga, breaking the Lannister guardsman's sword across his knee, telling him that the next time the Lannister dope attempts to bear steel against him, it's knives, dicks, and, oh, it's not goats this time. The dick would go in the fire. In burst the rest of the clansmen, along with Bronn, who gives his customary whatever-dude shrug at Tyrion. Tywin asks who they are, and Tyrion again with sardonic says that they followed him home. Can he keep them? And no one laughs because it, it's not that funny, Tyrion. Kevin Lannister asks why these savages are intruding on their war council. And the clansmen are like, we're not savages, you oppressive aristocratic little dicks. We're free men. And free men fucking belong on war councils. by rights. Sass the Lannisters. Sass them. Sass. Okay. I'm not enough. I'm getting carried away. I, I know. I, I just, I really love this chapter. Okay. Like, like I'm going to stop you, Jeff. I, I know. You're, you're not going to. The fact that you're, you're enabling me is what this, what's happening here. That's actually what's happening is you're enabling my worst behavior. I've been encouraging your worst instincts for a while now, buddy. You're just catching on. I just We're only 56 episodes into the podcast and I am finally just now catching on. Uh, you
1: learn something new every day.
0: I do indeed. Well, Kevin's all about to draw his sword, but Tywin stops him. And, you know, give Tywin credit for one thing. He really, really knows how to manipulate people. He tells Tyrion to introduce the clansmen to him and remember his manners. Tyrion does and then introduces Tywin to the clansmen as Tywin, son of Tytos of House Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, War of the West, Shield of Lannisport, and once and future Hand of the King. That last bit about once and future Hand, you think maybe, maybe Tywin gnaws on Grievance much, sort of like another character we love? No...
1: I don't know what you're drawing from to make that, Jeff. Both Tywin and Stannis are so good at letting things go.
0: They they never are like mastiffs with bones, I think is the way that Stannis is described it at, by John in A Dance of Dragons.
1: Like a mastiff with a bone just trying to gnaw it down to splinters. It's one of the best descriptions of Stannis, for
0: it, sure. It really, really is. Anyways, continuing in his manipulation, Tywin deftly maneuvers the clansmen towards joining up with them, saying that the prowess of the clansmen is well known in the West. But what brings you down from your strongholds? Horses, Shaga said. Okay, I, I know, right?
1: It's a very straight answer. You gotta like Shaggy. You just like, oh, okay, yeah, horses.
0: We're here for horses. Well, no, I, that's not the joke, though. The joke is that he says horses brought them down from the veil.
1: Oh, I'm so stupid. I didn't even get the <laughs> joke. Wow, I'm dumber than Shaggy. <laughs> I, I mean. Now I get it. Now it's funny.
0: That, yeah I, we're leaving I, all this in I, we really should i mean it's the most understated hilarious line for me in the game of thrones because i'm like because i didn't catch it the first couple times i read. I was like oh wait he's saying that horses brought them down to them from the veil itself but
1: oh now i get it that's actually hysterical That that's that's what a weird little yeah again like vaudeville kind of joke right right you don't see that anywhere that's great no it's
0: Carry fantastic on. but they also want silk and steel too and Tyrion is just about to tell Tywin how he wants to murder the shit out of the asshole nobles of the Vale, as well as, you know, all the innocent small folk as well, but then the door crashes open again. It's a messenger from Sir Adam Marbram, who reports that the Starks are marching down the causeway from Moat Kalen, and my heart is already fucking soaring. And then we get Tyrion's observation of Tywin's reaction, and this is probably my second favorite um, passage from this chapter. Lord Tywin did not smile. Lord Tywin never smiled. But Tyrion had learned to read his father's pleasure all the same, and it was there on his face. So the wolfling is leaving his den to play among the lions. Splendid. Return to Sir Adam and tell him to fall back. He is not to engage the northerners until we arrive, but I want him to harass their flanks and draw them farther south. Kevin urges Tywin to hold out here at the end of the crossroads, a strategic point where Tywin could defend from Stark attack or move west to help Jaime but Tywin, like a fucking moron, disagrees and says they're going to march forth and take on Robb Stark's army so as to lure the boy as to lure the boy lordling into battle. Kevin meekly backs off like a coward, and Tywin turns back to the clansmen and back to manipulation. It is said that the men of the mountain clans are warriors without fear. Why yes, everyone says that. Thank you for acknowledging this universally known truth, Lord Tywin the clansmen kind of but not really say. Well, Tywin wants the clansmen to ride with him against Robb Stark, and then they'll have all the gold and weapons they could ever want. Ah, yes, about that. Thanks, but no fucking thanks, you scheming piece of shit. You're going to have us fight for you after we were already promised money and weapons by your son Tyrion? Sorry, wasn't in the bargain. But Tywin has a bit more manipulation up his sleeve, talking about how the Northmen were made of ice and iron, and his own men feared to face them in battle. How about now? Fight for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, you flattered us. Might as well, right? We'll wipe the floor with these Northmen. Shagga adds in that he's going to use his dicks and knives and goats. Again, because that's his signature line. But Chella has something or someone else in mind. We will ride with you, Lion Lord, But only if your half-man son goes with us. He has bought his breath with promises. Until we hold the steel he has pledged us, his life is ours. Lord Tywin turns his gaze back on Tyrion. Ah, joy, Tyrion says with a resigned smile. And that is A Game of Thrones Tyrion 7. I I gotta admit, like, I I despise Tywin Lannister. I hate him. I, I absolutely hate him. But this chapter is just magnificent in its introduction of this character. And you can really feel that George has a very solid idea of who these characters are, as we're going to be talking about here. And so the introduction has to be perfect, and he nails it. And I have to admit this too. The introduction of Tywin Lannister is probably the best introduction of any major character or really any character, at least in the Game of Thrones, until we get to Stannis in the the Clash of Kings prologue. What did you think, Emmett?
1: Agreed completely. I think Tywin does get the best introduction in book one bar none, despite my personal hatred of the man, or because of my personal (laughs) hatred of the man, because all the reasons I really don't like Tywin I think are expressed so perfectly in this chapter by the author and by the characters. Obviously, we're introduced to a lot of characters in this first book, Starks and and Baratheons and Targaryens and other Lannisters, but Martin does such an excellent job here of establishing how Tywin has cut his way to the top by showing his political skills with the clansmen, as you were saying, and his military skills in terms of bringing the forces of the Westerlands to bear so quickly. I think we both agree that Tywin is definitely overrated as a general. We'll be getting into that as we go, but credit to where credit is due. It it does take some skill to bring this many men together this quickly. So Tywin is able to pull that off logistically. But in terms of the whole of Tywin's characterization, especially in terms of his relationship with Tyrion and how that relationship ends, what really matters about this chapter is that it focuses long and hard on what it feels like to be an ant under Tywin's boot. Yep. From Masha Heddle's corpse swinging in the wind outside to Tyrion feeling acutely aware of all his shortcomings at once once he's back under his father's gaze, Tyrion Seven frames Tywin as the ultimate authoritarian. Illyrio will say in a much later Tyrion chapter that Westerosi lords are far too arrogant about their sigils. If you caged up a Lannister with a real lion, they'd learn the difference soon enough. Mm -hmm. But while Tywin thinks of himself as a lion because they're proud and majestic, presumably, I think you can see Martin framing him as a lion in the predatory sense, that he's surrounded by what's left of his prey in this chapter, and he's hungry for more.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, Tywin is very much a predator, as we're going to be talking about. All of the things that they're actually doing in the Riverlands, they kind of paper over. These things are violent acts on Tywin's part. This is not a defensive lion or some sort of noble lion. This is this is violence. This is a manifestation of violence and at its most brutal level and nature. And I think Martin does a fantastic job before we even meet Tywin Lannister himself of showing us who he is by the crimes that are being committed in his name and by his men. It's important for that macro element of the Lannisters being not the nice guys of the story. I think we we can all agree on that at the very least. To be, a emblema- to be emblematic of who Tywin is because it's all representative of the type of leadership and the type of character that Tywin is bringing to the table. He's a predator in the story and he's preying on the defenseless people in the same way that a lion might prey on antelope or on other defenseless animals. So it's a fantastic introduction and it really, really sets the mood so, so well. And, you know, for us... If you're reading A Game of Thrones for the first time, you're really rooting for the Starks at this point, right? You're really scared for Robb Stark, and he's up against this guy who is 100% intimidating. He is the most intimidating character that we're going to encounter, I think, in A Game of Thrones, bar none.
1: And he's contrasted with the Mountain Clans, who we start the chapter with before we meet Tywin. And the Mountain Clans are, of course as you're alluding to in your your synopsis the Rousseau libertines (laughs) of my socialist dreams Uh, at least until we get to Mance Raider where really I think where where a lot of the political ideas I think in the Mountain Clans kind of pay off on a bigger scale is with with Mance and the Wildlings we ended Tyrion 6 on the cliffhanger as he was trying to bribe his way out of a life or death situation with the clans. And Martin doesn't keep us in suspense. He lets us know immediately that Tyrion's gambit with the clans worked in this chapter because they're scouting for him right away. Yep. So we know. And so already we see that Tyrion is working the clans in both the military sense, using them as scouts, and in the political sense in that he forces them to accompany him even though they don't let him go down alone. And he just he, he moves quickly to force them to keep up with his agenda in that regard. And I, I like this balance with the clans, as, as again you were saying in your synopsis, where they are awed by the sheer size and strength of Tywin's army, because how could they not be? As Tyrion says, they've never seen this many people before, let alone all the horses and arms. But they're not stupid. They don't let Tyrion go off on his own to talk to his dad because they know immediately that he's going to stab them in the back if they let him do that. And they're not intimidated by Tywin himself. They're not like, oh, this guy has so much gold and horses and men, he must be some kind of god or like some tired (laughs) troop like that. They're like, no, you're just an old man. Maybe you can call a bunch of other men with swords to to beat us up, but... We don't have to bow and scrape to you, you're like anyone else, which is, you know, not the kind of thing that Tywin likes to hear. Like, you know, Khan insists that all free men have a right to sit war councils, and that's a very admirable statement, and that it dovetails with Ned Stark's politics, it dovetails with Stannis's politics, especially as the series goes on, but it <laughs> does not remotely dovetail with Tywin Lannister's politics. Remember what he says to Tyrion at the end of this book, you feed your dog bones under the bench, you do not invite it to sit beside you at the high table.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, though, that you, you bring up the, the great point, and this is something I never noticed before that of all the characters in this story, everyone is overawed at who Tywin Lannister is Tyrion, Kevin, the other knights that are in Tywin's service. The only people that are not awed by that are the Mountain Clansmen. Like, they just don't give a shit about who Tywin is and the type of optics that he's surrounding himself with, the optics of power, of brutality, of a large army. They march right into Tywin Lannister's, uh, in- into the hall at the end of the crossroads and just demand things from this guy that they've never met before. But probably, I mean, the, the, again, the Mount clansmen are not dumb. They probably are well aware of who Tywin Lannister is, at least by reputation. So that's brave on their part. And I think it's a testament to the clan political structure and to who they are as a people that they're not overawed by this sack of shit. I- I'm sorry, I'm-, I'm getting ahead of myself again. I apologize.
1: They're not overawed because they have no reason to be, because this isn't the political structure they were raised in, because they don't owe him anything. And because while they, I'm sure they realize they can't fight their way out, they'd rather die trying than bend the knee to someone like Tywin. So he doesn't really have anything over them other than his, his basic political skills, which we will get to in a bit. Right. But he can't he can't intimidate them right off the bat the way he can, as you say, with pretty much everybody else. And that as you say, reflects on the different political ideas at work. Like you get this little important bit early in the chapter when Tyrion is thinking to himself about how the clansmen practice this absurd thing called democracy, <laughs> where they have every voice heard and sometimes even the women get to talk. Who's ever heard of such a thing? Outrageous. Outrageous. And that's it's a very important moment. First of all, for establishing the clans as kind of more sympathetic than their initial, like, goofy, brutish surface might have seemed in Tyrion six that Really, their political system is much more admirable than anything else we see pretty much anywhere else in Westeros. Yeah. And it's important to establish that Tyrion hates all that stuff. He (laughs) thinks democracy is silly and egalitarianism is ridiculous, and it just gets in the way of making important, quick decisions. And that's very representative of what a lot of people thought, especially in that class, for a very long time, well into... Modernity, as we conceive of it, democracy was this silly backwards notion that you know it didn't work for the Greeks. Look what it did to them! Right, and it's, it's it's always just going to descend into chaos and mob rule, and you got to put a lot of obstacles in place. So Tyrion isn't just making this up, but it does reveal how you know we might like Tyrion for his his glib snark, and he's an underdog in a lot of situations. But this is really, I think, more than anywhere else in Book One, where Martin tips his hand as to the darkness under that surface that. Not only does Tyrion consider democracy to be backwards and childish, but he wants to eliminate it specifically so he can turn the clansmen into this guerrilla nightmare and, <laughs> and and take over the veil and d- destroy the veil for personal vengeance. So, as I was saying in pre-production, I really didn't realize my first time through exactly how many You Are a Villain boxes right? Tyrion is Tyrion is ticking off here. But it's blatant on Reread. I mean, it,
0: it is. And Martin said in a 1999 or 2000 interview with Amazon.com, that he was like, oh, my favorite character is Tyrion. He's the villain, of course. Blah 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 blah. So when you talk, when you think, when you think about Tyrion as a villain, I think we can start to circle back to this. We also see some of it a little bit in Tyrion five and six, a little bit how he's manipulating people and how he has a very elitist view of his fellow human beings. He's very mercurial. He uses people. He uses his family's vast wealth, even all the way through Dance with Dragons. The promise of his family's vast wealth, even by the end, as we'll talk about towards the end of this podcast. And these things are not enshrining Tyrion with these optics of being a hero in the story. And I think people may be influenced by Game of Thrones, the show, which kind of paints Tyrion in a much more positive, heroic light. Look at Tyrion and see a person I identify with, as we talked about before. He is much more of the embodiment of the modern conception. He's rational. He's skeptical. He's a little bit kind of atheistic slash agnostic in terms of his treatment of the gods. He's very much this kind of scientific guy who reads about lots of stuff. He's very literate. He's educated. But underneath of all of that kind of modernity and all those good things about Tune is also this level of... Like you said, villainy, because all those boxes are checked off. He wants to arm the Mountain Clans, not because he wants to liberate them, but because he wants to gain vengeance on the Vale for what they did to him by imprisoning him and almost killing him. And like we said in those past Tyrion episodes, it's really understandable why Tyrion feels this way, that he wants to fuck, fuck the Vale up. But he's not really taking that longer, larger view of being like, yeah, fucking the Vale Lords up and their Knights up. That might be justified in some sense, but all the small folk... The tens or hundreds of thousands of people that are living in the Vale, that are living there peacefully, that had nothing to do with your capture, imprisonment and your trial up in the Vale. That's 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 a bit much. That's very much like this other character we're about to meet here.
1: It's this insistence that your personal turmoil be reflected violently on the landscape, that your anger has to shake the mountains yeah. and break towns and break people and that's the only way your anger is going to feel validated i think we can see that as a through line across a lot of people in the series some of whom are as unsympathetic as tywin some of whom are slightly more so but it's it's right. definitely a common theme and it's it's established so well with tywin but as, as before we meet the man himself as we said about uh, catalan in catalan 8 when she was approaching rob's army and martin martin is very good at drawing characters through armies to their center or through groups of people to the person at the, the core and heart of them who is leading them. So you get this sense of the people before you meet who's leading them. And we get that here when we are introduced to the Army of the West, the army under Tywin Lannister, who we're going to be spending a fair amount of time with. Arya ends up in their control in the Clash of Kings at Hall and witnesses them uh, in that castle, recruiting the Bloody mumbers, sending them out for raiding and then uh, marching off to eventually the Battle of the Fords. Tywin comes back with them to victory at the Blackwater and then keeps them with him in the city through a storm of swords. After that, a lot of them demobilize, go home yep. to the Western lands. I think some end up in the siege of Riverrun in some capacity, but that's that's pretty much the end at this point of their, their function in the story. But we, we start with them here as this big, vast, 20,000-strong army But as I said, we see intimidating the mountain clans, which I think is in part a way to establish just to us, the reader, how big and impressive an army this is.
0: Yeah, it's big and impressive. It's also well-armed, too. I, I think when we look at the Army of the West— we are seeing the same sort of mentality that we see a little bit in the north and that not all of these guys are, are knights, but they have a lot more professional soldiers, so to speak, in the forms of knights in that army itself. I think it's mentioned in the next Tyrion chapter that they have about 4,000 knights, which is which is a lot. It's it's a lot It just in terms of sheer numbers, but it's also a lot in terms of how you would pay, arm, and train these guys. That's a significant amount of money you would take to maintain this standing army-ish. And I, and I know that's not 100% historical necessarily or true to fact. I mean, these knights weren't always just training or practicing, but they are essentially operating as the standing army-ish of of, the, of Westeros. So 4,000 is a huge, huge number. So we know that they're 20,000 strong. They outnumber Robb Stark's 18,000 man army. And we know that they're the second Lannister army. There's already another Lannister army under Jaime that is besieging Riverrun, which has probably similar parity to Robb Stark's 18,000. So Thirty to 40,000 Lannister soldiers in the field, that's a pretty high number to put out in the field and be able to supply, maintain, train, and of course be operating here. We also know their position at the end of the crossroads, and this is really important because it is showing us that Tywin can march north to confront any Stark army that is coming down the King's Road, or if Robb Stark somehow manages to cross to the Twins and march on Jamie. Tywin could then cross the Trident and move west towards River Run to aid Jamie's army that's besieging River Run. But it's also a bit reflecting Tywin's elitist view of people. So we see immediately that he is positioned at the end of the crossroads and he steals the property out from under the people living in the Riverlands. And the end of the crossroads itself is taken violently away from its owner, Masha Heddle, because Tywin, he's got a monopoly on violence. He could take the end of the crossroads. And he doesn't give a shit that he's taking something by force. And then, of course, he hangs Masha Hedel afterwards for her crime. It's not a crime. God, I'm such a fucking asshole. And then we also see that Tywin has encamped in the permanent structure in the Crossroads. Lords are in their great pavilions. Knights with their tents, and common men are sleeping out under the stars. And I and I do have a question about this. You know, as much as we love the Starks. There is mention made about how the Stark army outside of Moat Kaelin and within Moat Kaelin itself, how the lesser lords had tents and the great lords had the towers at Moat Kaelin, and the common soldiers slept out under the stars. And is that all that much different from Robb's army that Tywin's army is arrayed in similar fashion with Tywin occupying the, the permanent structure, the great lords in their pavilions, knights in their lesser tents and their common men out under the stars? Now, I guess maybe there's a caveat in that Catelyn notes in the in Catelyn 8 that Rob Starks lead the Manderly host that's marched from White Harbor to the high ground and away from the mud itself so they wouldn't get too wet. I just don't know if that's significant or not, but I thought it was a detail at least worth noting in comparing the two armies. But they do have a similar class structure and that's reflected in the types of structures themselves that they're existing in.
1: That's a great point. I mean, you know, we don't want to pretend that the Starks are in any way breaking the wheel, so to speak. Right. R- Rob Stark is not Beric Dondarrion. His army is not the Brotherhood Without Banners. He is still very much a feudal noble and exists within that same system, economic and socially, and you know mentally to a certain extent as Tywin Lannister. But as we've been suggesting, you know, Tywin is unusually bad even within that framework, and deliberately unusually bad, trying to stand out as as driven by terror within that framework. So I think it's 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 important to ask those questions. I think it's an interesting question: how armies on the march both reproduce and flatten those distinctions in their society because on the one hand, Tywin doesn't have Casterly Rock anymore. His, his, his giant mountain fortress that shows how big and impressive he is. A nice tent is still a tent. On the other hand, look at how much Renly packs into that tent that he has at, a, in, in, at Bitterbridge when he lets Catelyn stay in it. He, he's all, all these possessions and supplies and, and rich fabrics and food. And you know, most soldiers on, on the march, the common soldiers in their tents don't have anything resembling that. But as we're comparing Tywin's army to Rob's, and as I was saying earlier, I think there are some extensive parallels between this chapter and Catelyn eight that we did last week. And they really stood out to me in this reread. Most obviously, of course, we're seeing two armies preparing to meet in battle. The forces of North and West gathered together under Stark and Lannister. The heart of both these chapters is a parent-child relationship between Catelyn and Rob in the last chapter and Tyrion and Tywin in this one. And in a nice little detail, there are, in both cases, that relationship is mediated at first by someone else in the room noticing the POV coming in. When Catelyn entered the council session in Mokalin, Grey Wynn noticed her first before Robden. And when Tyrion comes into the end of the crossroads, in this chapter, Kevon notices him before Tywin does. In both cases, our POV is turning up with a bunch of companions who will join the army. Catelyn has the Manderlis, uh, Tyrion has the clansmen. In both chapters, we get this this mix of hard military and political strategy sessions with the more character-focused dialogue between the parent and the child. In both cases, they haven't seen each other since the plot really kicked into gear, so they have to be kind of filled in on what's happening. And at chapter's end, in both cases, our PUV unexpectedly joins their family's forces on the march. Catelyn is going to go with Rob to Riverrun. Tyrion is going to stick with Ty- Tywin's armies and marches against Rob.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely correct, is that you do see a lot of the same parallels here. And it's very clear to me that Martin... Intentionally structured these two chapters to resemble each other, like you said, very, very well. And Catelyn and Tyrion occupy similar spheres and places in these chapters themselves. They are unexpected visitors and they do interesting things in the chapter. But at the same time, though, even though there are lots of parallels between Tyrion and Catelyn and the two chapters in total, the tone is much, much different from this chapter and our preceding Catelyn chapter.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's that's really the core of it. It feels completely different, even as the structure is the same. Catlin's companions, the Manderleys, were welcome, indeed anticipated. The army was waiting for them to show up. Tyrion's companions, the clansmen, are unanticipated and <laughs> largely unwelcome. <laughs> In the Lannister camp, Catelyn sticks with Robb of her own volition. There's that very moving moment we were talking about at the end of Catelyn 8 where she decides I can't go home to Winterfell and Bran and Rickon and happiness even as much as I want to. I have to go to my father and my brother because they're in danger. Tyrion, at the end of this chapter, is basically blackmailed by the clan (laughs) representatives into marching with Tywin. It is very much not his own choice and he is extremely sarcastic about it in the closing moments of the chapter. Above all else, of course, though, the main contrast between Catelyn 8 and Tyrion 7 is that Catelyn's relationship with Rob is warm and loving, albeit strained in this perilous context. Tywin's relationship with Tyrion is this hideous, hateful thing that ultimately poisons them both. So, while it is definitely too simplistic to say that Stark versus Lannister, as it's being developed here, is good guys versus bad guys, I think we are being presented with a hopeful versus cynical take on a lot of the same themes and tropes. What we're seeing is the reason that how Stark will endure beyond Rob's death. And we're seeing the reason House Lannister will crumble, starting with Tywin.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the major reasons why I see this contrast working so well, and that is showing them being dissimilar, is exactly as you said, the leg- the ultimate legacies of both of these men, Rob Stark and Tywin Lannister, are so, so, so different. And the reason why they're so different is that Ned Stark and Rob Stark have united the North and are leading them because people want to follow these guys. You know, Machiavelli kind of gets a bad name for being the guy that says that you should rule by fear. But what preceded that was that it is better to be loved than feared. And I think like when we're talking about Tyman Lannister, his rule is entirely fear-based. People are afraid to challenge him, as we'll be talking about here in a little bit. And the reason they're afraid to challenge him is because... I mean, you guys have heard the the litany of crimes that Tywin Lannister committed when he was 18, 19 years old, operating in the Westerlands against the Rains and the Tarbex. They know this guy is capable of killing people without mercy. Robb Stark, on the other hand, is capable of leading men and having men want to follow him. And that is a very clear distinction between the two men and the two causes that they're operating. Stark and Lannister... I agree that it's a little bit simplistic to call them the good guys and the bad guys, but they are being narratively positioned to be the good guys versus the bad guys. The good underdogs versus the haughty over... Overdogs? Is that a real word? I don't know. The haughty people who are in a position of superiority and strength.
1: The haughty lions, if you will. I mean, the, 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 the sigil does work perfectly there. Yeah, it's a terrific point that Tywin only thinks he can rule through fear, and that ultimately comes back to bite him and all of his accomplishments because... It infects his family as well. It's not just his politics. It's his personal relationships. Yeah. And that connection between the personal and the political, we spend a lot of time talking about that in Catalan 8, and that's very present here. And the relationship between Tyrion and Tywin Lannister is one of the central dramatic elements yes. in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's one where the storytelling fundamentals are as rock-solid as they could possibly be. It climaxes with Tyrion staring his hated father in the face, knowing at last what he's done— and pulling the trigger despite seeing himself reflected back because he sees himself reflected back. Yep. I mean, the, the the bitter irony is as far from the family-destroying Oedipal-adjacent desires <laughs> so, many, so many in Tyrion's family and environment ascribe to him, Tyrion just wanted his family to love him for so long, including the first couple books in this series, and only when he sees that they won't... Only then does he break, and he acts not to conquer House Lannister, but to commit symbolic suicide. I mean, that's what it means when he says to, to Tywin, I'm you, Rit Small, while killing him. Mm-hmm. That's some heavy shit, and it only lands because it's earned, because we've built up the Tywin so effectively, especially with the story about Taisha about in Tyrion's last chapter, and now that starts to pay off. I mean, I, I call this the best introduction of the Game of Thrones because of how well Martin embeds the beginning of that particular arc in every detail of this chapter. And it starts with Masha Heddle, as we've been saying. This is just such a brutal, wretched act of violence. Like Veyon Pool, Masha was a non-combatant, but unlike Veyon, she wasn't even in service to either side of this conflict. And now her life and her home and her neighbors, as you were saying about the town that Tywin sacked, her entire world is ash and dust. Because she had the ill fortune to be present mm-hmm. when something bad happened to a Lannister. And none of that means anything to Tywin. None of that loss means anything to him, not compared to his pride. Because he fundamentally doesn't think of Masha Heddle as a person, not compared to him.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it really gets some kind of you know, sustainment in, in the fact that in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion is talking with Penny and Penny is telling him, like, you can't act this way around, around these people. They're the big people. They can hurt you. And Tyrion's like, my father called them small folk. And he was not what you'd call a jolly man. So for Tywin, he doesn't view Masha Heddle as a person. She's a small folk. The people that lived in the community around Masha Heddle, they were nothing to Tywin. He didn't seemingly feel anything about killing them, burning their properties to the ground, and taking residence within them by violent force of arms. That's who Tywin Lannister is. He doesn't see anything resembling humanity in people that are of a lesser noble class than him. And, you know, granted for that matter, he barely views the noble class that he's a part of in the same light. He's seemingly views himself as above all of that. And because he's above all of that, he is able to commit these mass atrocities throughout his entire existence in A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's really the reason why, me personally, why I just can't stand the guy. And, you know, there's, there's both the... The, the personal side that he's a very venal vain man who wraps all of his violent actions, not in some sort of Machiavellian consequentialist, the ends justify the means sort of mentality. Although he would have you believe that it's that all of these horrible, horrible actions are all rooted through the very personal grievances and slights. He feels and feels that are against him and his family's name. And that's, Terrible, especially when it comes to someone like Masha Heddle, who, again, did nothing wrong. But the fact that she happened to be present when the Lannister family name, his name in particular, were undercut and shown to be weak means that she is dispensable and she's not even a human being. And that's terrible.
1: Tywin's self-justification is that he commits these acts of terror in order to impress Lannister reputation and pride. And Lannister reputation and pride is his source of power. So if he's going to do anything good for his family or the rest of Westeros, he has to have that power in his hand. Yes. That's the justification he expresses to many characters in many forms and almost certainly in his own head. But I think Martin wants us to dig behind that image and see what's really going on, especially as we go throughout these first three books. And coming back to it and reread, that's so clear because we know where it's going. So we can see that... This is not about using, to borrow land from Gangs of New York, the spectacle of fearsome acts to coldly instill this image of, of you in people's heads to affect their behavior, because as we've been saying, Masha had nothing to do with this. So killing her in no way alters the calculus of whether a Lannister is going to be threatened like this again. All she did was urge Catelyn to take the dispute elsewhere because she knew at some level she was going to pay for it, and she did. So what's the message Tywin is sending by killing her? What's the behavior he hopes to change? What is the lesson being learned by the enemies of House Lannister that would supposedly justify this murder in Tywin's eyes? It's not there. To borrow from Schindler's List this time, Tywin is setting no rules that you can live by. I mean, to be clear, his behavior would be reprehensible even if it lived up to the image in his head, even if his cold, horrible logic did make internal sense, it would still be bad. But Martin is making plain right here from the outset that it doesn't. Tywin is a brute for a purpose in his mind, but his hypocrisy reveals the hollowness of that purpose. That'll come out in full, of course, when we get to Shea, And we've, Tyrion finds out that his dad shares the exact same predilections as Tyrion and his father Tytos. And the, the layer to that we get in terms of our POV is that Tyrion despises his father for all of this and how Tywin has treated him, but Tyrion imitates the father he hates. Look at how dismissive he is of poor Masha's fate. And he says, all I asked of you was a room and a drink. And he's just, it's not even that he's not sad about her death. He's, he's making a joke. Yeah. He's looking at this like crow-eaten corpse of this innocent woman and going, yeah, well, if only you'd given me like a hot dog. Womp, womp. That's that's his response, which, I mean, we t- we talk about how Tyrion's snark kind of gets empty on the, shno- on the show. But I think part of it is that when it's used effectively, it's used like this, where it's gallows humor that reveals kind of how dark Tyrion is. Like, you shouldn't be making Gallo's humor at this moment, but he is. Yeah. Which is... So that shows he doesn't really think Tywin's behavior is all that wrong. Maybe he can make the intellectual case why that's too brutal. But he doesn't feel it the way I think Martin wants the audience to.
0: Tyrion very much reflects his father. He is his father, writ Small, as he says in his final chapter in The Storm of Swords. And being writ Small means that he looks at the body of Masha Heddle and sees not terror or horror, or feel even a sense of, like... Man, that that really sucks. It's more like you should have given me a drink. You shouldn't have. You shouldn't have fussed with me at, at the end of the crossroads. He sees her almost the same as Tywin does. Is almost inhuman, as basically a, a gnat that could be swatted away. And that's man. that can be joked about in, in Tyrion's mind.
1: You should have given me what I want, and you didn't. So now you're dead. Right. That's how it works. And. I think the way Martin is framing Tywin's intro, specifically with the murdered body of a peasant woman, gets at so much about his story. Gets at what he's, his armies are going to do to the Riverlands, especially the women of the Riverlands. What happened to Ilia Martell? What happened to Tytos' mistress? Uh, and, and, and personally, when it comes to Tywin and Tyrion, it points forward to Shea's death as the fallout of the murderous dynamic between father and son that we first see Tyrion and Tywin meet under the shadow of this murdered woman definitely points the way forward to Shae. But of course, it also points back to Tysha, uh, the, the another woman who was not killed by Tywin, but horribly scarred and assaulted on his orders, and so always lingers over this scene. And Joanna, that's the other kind of ghost hovering, hovering over this scene, is, yep. is Tyrion's mom, is Tywin's wife, who died giving birth to Tyrion. And especially coming back to this after Tywin brutally confirms that he blames Tyrion for his mother's death, which is, is so appalling, it's hard to put into words, mm-hmm you realize, coming back to this scene, that, oh, all Tyrion is thinking about is Taisha, and all Tywin is thinking about is Joanna, and they're not talking to each other. Because every time they look at each other, this is all they're thinking about are these these dead or lost women that they they can't get past and took away the best part of themselves, and now just the worst part of themselves are left fighting with each other. These are the ghosts that Tywin and Tyrion bring to the table any time they talk. This is their ultimate inner ammunition against the other. Now, to be fair, when we're saying about how much Tyrion imitates Tywin as like Tywin. Let's pause to note that Tyrion hating Tywin about Taisha is perfectly justified. Sure. Ty- Tywin hating Tyrion about about Joanna is horrible and not justified in the least.
0: No, it's not, but I think it's Martin does a really good job here of setting subtext. So when we come back and reread this chapter knowing that Tywin will eventually tell Tyrion You ask that, you who killed your mother to come into the world? You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature, full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colors, since I cannot prove that you are mine. To teach me humility, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle about wearing that proud lion that was my father's sigils and my father's before him. But neither gods nor men's shall ever let me compel you to turn Castly Rock into your whorehouse. That's overt when we get into Tyrion's first chapter in Storm of Swords, but when we go back and read this chapter from a Game of Thrones, that over-the-top context we see in Storm is very, very much present here in the subtext. That Tywin is looking at Tyrion as this person who killed Joanna Lannister, and Tyrion is looking at Tywin as the person who had Tysha raped. Tyrion is absolutely justified in feeling hate and anger towards Tywin for the treatment of Tysha. Tywin is not justified for blaming Tyrion for Joanna's death.
1: I think you said it perfectly. That later scene is under the surface, the scene where Tywin finally bursts out and says what he he feels about Tyrion. You can already sense it here, even if it's not put into words. When Tyrion says about how he feels small and weak and lesser as soon as Tywin's eyes are on him, aware of all his shortcomings and deformities, that's Tywin saying you're an ill-made, spiteful little creature without having to say it. That's him saying it with his eyes and his mood and just his presence in the room. That's the full brunt of their toxic dynamic coming to bear in every little interaction. That's the thing. You got to know that every conversation between Tyrion and Tywin has probably worked this way. Mm-hmm. Their entire life where they just, they can't stand to be in the room with each other. And that just wears on a person, just on their soul over time. This this explains why so much of what was good and wanting love in Tyrion has just been chipped away at. Not just out of the, the sheer brutal deconstruction of something like Taisha, but also just the day-to-day... Inhumanity that comes off of Tywin Lannister, like like a glow. And it, immediately you see that in the dialogue in the scene, in the first conversation that we see between these two in the series. Tywin promptly holds Tyrion responsible for his own kidnapping, foreshadowing how he will hold Tyrion responsible for the, the circumstances of his own birth. And he holds up Jamie as this shining model who would never let himself get captured by a woman. Which is just absurd. First of all, it's hilarious to think about in the context of Brienne. Like when Jamie gets his ass kicked by right. Brienne in a storm of swords, and very much gets himself recaptured by a woman. But also, like what Jamie would have done at the end of the crossroads, gotten himself killed. Right. He would have been outnumbered twelve to one, and very crucially, those twelve guys had already drawn their swords. Mm-hmm. So Jamie has no chance to break away or take out a few of them first. As good a swordsman as Jamie is, he'd be dead meat, and that's what Tywin is saying should be the model. Like, I mean, it's Jamie's recklessness that gets him to walk right into Rob's trap at the Whispering Wood just as Dad will walk right into Rob's trap at the Green Fork. Mm-hmm. So, again, these layers on reread where you realize how, like, rotten and shallow Tywin's mindset is on every level. Or, like, just look like, when he tries to give Tyrion a command to deal with barrack he just doesn't, he does it so nastily. Right. Like, do you think you could deal with that without making too much of a botch of it? <laughs> like, ooh, that just makes, like, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because that's, like, such a toxic family thing to do is just be mean for no reason in a way that doesn't help you in the conversation just because you, you you feel like you need to purge yourself. like That's how Tyrion and Tywin talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Just compare that to the respectful conversation Rob and Catlin had about the strategy last week where it's like Katalin was like, good, I'm encouraging him. I got to let him know that was maybe a mistake without crushing his newfound confidence in himself. And compare that to Tywin going, do you think you could handle this without screwing it up like you screw up everything else?
0: Yeah, it's it's so tense, their relationship. It's so fraught with these this extraordinarily long history of hatred and this undercurrent of violence and these this subtext of Joanna and Tysha. And what I think is really, really interesting though is Tyrion's response to all of this. So Tywin is all like, don't make a botch, can you think you can handle that? Not make a botch but that'd be fine. But Tyrion, interestingly, like his response to Tywin is to like kind of make a joke of it all. Like he that's his that's his recourse. That is his uh what's what's the word? The psychological word for uh, his defense mechanism? Yes, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, his humor is his defense mechanism. And I think there's a really cool parallel that we see later when uh, Aunt Jenna Lannister is talking, or Aunt Jenna Frey, whatever you want to call, is talking with Jamie in A Feast for Crows, where she's comparing how all of Tywin's brothers interacted with Tywin himself, talking about Kevin having to live in Tywin's shadow. And then Tiget tried to be his own man, but he could never match your father. That's more of the Jaime role, and that just made him angry as the years went by. And then here's the Tyrion parallel. Jirion, or Garion, Jirion, Garion, whatever. Jirion made Japes. Better to mock the game than to play and lose. So that seems to be Tyrion's model of how he's operating here. He's operating almost as the Jirion Lannister type character here. He's making Japes as Tywin is being this rude, condescending son of a bitch to Tyrion the entire time. But what Jirion and Before him and what Tyrion is doing now, it's just a defense mechanism to kind of deflect this because this is the only way that these characters can deal with who Tywin is, is this nasty, awful person.
1: And Uncle Jiren was Tyrion's favorite uncle, as he says, so it makes perfect sense. Tyrion probably adopted this technique by watching his uncle, and that's how his uncle dealt with Tywin, and that's how Tyrion decided he was going to deal with Tywin. But as you say, it it doesn't work. It's Tyrion's armor, to get back to what he Mm -hmm. says to Jon Snow, but the armor is ultimately hollow because it doesn't stop the pain. And it only gets Tywin more and more angry because the other person I'm sure that that japing silly technique reminds Tywin of and the other ghost in the room is his father, Tytos. Because ultimately the fear here on Tywin's part, and you really see this with Taisha, of course, is that Tyrion is going to become Tytos and he's going to humiliate and drag down the Lannister name just as Tywin believes Tytos did. And so that's what leads Tywin to be so brutal regarding Taisha and later Aliyah when we get to uh, the end of *A Clash of Kings and the beginning of the Storm of Swords. But the, the great irony here, though, is that by treating Tyrion this way, Tywin has actually made Tyrion in his own image. Tyrion isn't Tytos, he's Tywin. Right. And what that reveals is that Tywin and Tytos actually had things in common, no matter what the former tells himself. Yep. You, you get this this horrible, tragic decay where the commonality among Lannister men, which could lead to bonding... Among them instead leads to alienation, ultimately destruction, where every generation hates the one before it and turns on them and destroys them and ends up hollow. Tyrion can't bear being his father, but who else is he gonna be? It's it feels so strongly when I reread this chapter like like they're literally one person, Mm -hmm. like they're arguing inside one head. These are two aspects of the Mm -hmm. same person. So that so the hatred between them is self-hatred. And the oppression from Tywin to Tyrion reflects his repression of himself. Oh yeah. And as I said, so when you get to Tyrion killing Tywin it's it's a murder but it's also a suicide it's also mm. Tyrion trying to wipe himself off the face of the earth and all his pain and all his tywinness and hope he can just just get it all away.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, we get to dance with dragons and we have Tyrion uh, his intensive self loathing is all related to him killing Tywin. I mean, he's, he thinks about Shay a lot as well, but he thinks about Tywin. It's like, father, are you watching me down in all the, in the, in the lowest depths of hell as I put the the house Lannister to rest? Like these, that like, that is very like Ty- Tyrion's nihilism that we see in a dance with dragons. It is very much connected to the events at the end of a storm of swords but it's very much also connected to this self-loathing and him killing of tywin and like you said so masterfully them existing in the same headspace as each other and as he says at the end of a storm of swords father i am believe that i am you writ small so him killing tywin is a sense of self-suicide for 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 the Lannisters, but it is essentially also helps us to kind of engage with Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons and realize that he's suicidal because he has already essentially killed himself in the form of his father.
1: I think the reason Tyrion ultimately thinks about Tywin more than Shay is in part because Tyrion just has extremely problematic views on women in general. That's true. But also because he can, Shae is external to him. He can keep her outside himself and tell himself, she betrayed me, it was horrible, I loved her, how could you do that to me? But Tywin he knows is inside. Mm-hmm. Tywin he knows is part of him, so he can't dismiss that. He can't get rid of that. And so that really haunts him because he, he feels he has no destiny other than to be like Tywin and he would rather choose the Abyss than that. And all of this is reflected back on the politics, back on the bigger picture, mm-hmm. back on the Lannister legacy that Tywin wants to create because that's so wrapped up in his family. So one more ghost hanging over this conversation I think we have to talk about <laughs> before we get to Jeff's beloved strategy <laughs> session is Casterly Rock itself. Because as Tyrion will say to himself when he finally confronts Tywin on this subject, in that scene we were talking about two books from now, he's always known at some level that he's going to be disinherited. Mm -hmm. That Tywin will not give him the rock despite every precedent in Westeros law and custom pointing to Tyrion getting the rock. And one thing I was wondering on this reread, and I was talking about this some on Twitter, is how the Westerlands political class deals with the uncertainty of who exactly will be following in Tywin's footsteps. Like Tywin's whole claim to fame is, I'm going to keep control of my bannermen. But a huge part of keeping control of your abandonment, as so many leaders say in the series, is providing this reliable line of succession and this clear, yep. I'm in charge now and here's my heir who I'm training to be good at what they're do- they do and then they're going to train their heir like this. And that's, you know, that's that's ideally that's how the system is supposed to work and there's this kind of uncertainty here. Tyrion is neither pariah among the Westerlands nobles, as we see in this chapter, they're all like calling out to him as they pass and like, Oh, hello Tyrion, good to see you alive but he's not the center of attention either like he would be if he was the heir to like the richest house in the kingdom. Yeah. Like you know, if he really if he was the public heir of Tywin Lannister, there'd there always be courtiers swarming about him wanting to be his best friend and his confidant and get in close with him. So that suggests that the Westerlands nobles are trying to stay on Tyrion's good side because they don't know what capacity and what power he might develop in life, but that they know he's not the heir. And that is that kind of unspoken untension that can just, just destroy a family from the inside out. A noble family, or otherwise, and it does. Yeah. So there are just there's so many interlocking, intersecting layers of dysfunction. Oh my god! Yeah. The dysfunction between Tywin and Tyrion. The dysfunction between Tywin and Titus. The dysfunction between Tywin and the political future of the Westerlands. Between Tywin and the unlucky civilians in his path. It's this Greek tragic house of cards that is designed to collapse at this exact pressure point between father and son. And of course, it does at the end of a storm of swords, and we see the ripple effects all across feast and dance.
0: Yeah, it is 100% dysfunctional. And it is so dysfunctional that Tywin is, and George R. R. Martin has made this point explicitly that he's thinking that he can name Jamie Lannister as his heir. But wait, Jamie's in the Kingsguard, and you can't name a Kingsguard as heir to Cashley Rock. Like, he still has these delusions in his mind. He despises his son so much that he's willing to break all Westerosi cultural norms and bounds in order to name a son who is now a wearing the white cloak as his heir.
1: But enough of that character shit, Jeff. Take uh, us into battle. Oh,
0: the battle stuff. Yep. Time to let that freak flag fly and talk some more war shit. But I'm going to pare this down a little bit from the last time because, you know, I think maybe I let my free flag fly a little too high and got a little too war nerdy about these things. And I think the best way to do some of this battle planning analysis stuff is to talk about it in terms of character. So instead of going through the military decision-making process, I think it's important to talk about Tywin's buildup to the battle and how his war planning characterizes Tywin. And George R. R. Martin does this, I think, in three major ways. And the first is that in that War Council session with the Lannisters, Tywin is displaying a lot of arrogance. He says, No sword is strong until it's been tempered, Lord Tywin declared. The Stark boy is a child. No doubt he likes the sound of war horns well enough and the sight of his banners fluttering in the wind, but in the end it comes down to butcher's work. I doubt he has the stomach for it. What we're seeing here is that Tywin is thinking that because of Rob's youth and inexperience that he's not, that he's going to run from battle and that he doesn't, really matter all that much in terms of the battle to come. And that arrogance is going to have some pretty significant ramifications for the the Lannister armies, both Lannister armies, as we're going to discover here in a few chapters. The second aspect is that Tywin is very overconfident about his chances and about the situation in the Riverlands. Yes, he has some reason to be confident because they have won a fair number of victories so far. They have not suffered any setbacks. But at the same time, he's got some real problems on his hand. And he doesn't he dismisses these problems. So he says, Frey, that is Water Frey, only takes the field when the scent of victory is in the air, and all he smells now is ruin. And Jason Malister lacks the strength to fight alone. Once Jamie takes River Run, they will both be quick enough to bend the knee. Unless the Starks and the Arons come forth to oppose us, this war is good as won. Interesting. I <laughs> One one thing I think to, to bring up here is that Tywin is thinking that River Run is just about to fall, and maybe that's the case. But at the same time, as we see at the end of A Storm of Swords, on into A Feast for Crows, River Run is able to withstand a siege for a long time against the Freys and the Lannisters that come up on it after the Red Wedding. So, and River Run is a really, really easily defensible location, as we'll be talking about here when we get to Catelyn's 10th and 11th chapters from Game of Thrones. And then finally, the major thing that we see here is that Tywin doesn't listen to advice. Sir Kevin Lancer tells Tywin, we are well situated here, close to the ford and ringed by pits and spikes. If they are coming south, I say, let them come and break themselves against us. And Tywin responds, The boy may hang back or lose his courage when he sees our numbers. Again, overconfident. The sooner the Starks are broken, the sooner I shall be free to deal with Stannis Baratheon. Tell the drummers to beat Assembly and send word to Jamie that I am marching against Rob Stark. So, Kevin Lannister is correctly pointing out that Tywin is well-situated here at the end of the crossroads, as we talked about in the Catelyn Five uh, Not A Cast episode. The end of the crossroads stands at the intersection of all of the rivers that are coming in and around the Riverlands themselves. So, if Robb Stark somehow crosses the Twins and marches against Riverrun, Tywin can move to intercept Robb Stark. If Robb Stark comes south, the end of the crossroads is a fairly defensible, easy to defend location. And I have to give Kevin Lannister one thing: he gives good advice to Tywin Lannister here. But because Kevin Lannister is living in Tywin's shadow, Tywin is able to push him away, and Kevin meekly assents and bows his head and said, "It must be done." And I think it's really important when we're talking about this to contrast this to the last Catelyn chapter and to Rob and his battle planning. And we see in Rob someone who, one, recognizes the fault lines in his army and the potential plans that he has in front of him, and he's considering his options very carefully. Secondly, he's really unsure whether he's going to win in the field and scared that regardless if he loses, that his family will die. And then finally... Rob Stark listens to his Lord's Bannermen and starts developing his battle plan based on the advice that they give him. And he's also developing his scheme of maneuver based on those plans that characters like Rickard Karstark, Roos Bolton, and the Great John Umber are presenting to him. He then crafts his own plans, but then he adapts that plan when Catelyn advises him that the Great John may not be the best commander of the infantry to confront last Laster. And as we just talked about, that contrast between the two chapters, Catlin 8 and Tyrion 7, is intentional on George's part. And I think here we're supposed to contrast how Rob Stark is conducting business as commander of the Northern Host versus how Tywin is doing it. And I think this also works to suggest that Tywin is not the uber commander akin to your Baylor, Breakspears, Stannis Baratheons, and Aegon the Conquerors, and that his reputation is wildly, wildly overstated as a military commander. But his prowess as a politician, perhaps not so overrated.
1: I think Taiwan on the whole is a better politician than General, but even in the former case, his pride and penchant for terror backfires on him as the series goes on, as we've been suggesting. Worth noting, though, that a lot of the layers we're talking about are, of course, only apparent on reread. And this right. is a reread podcast, but I think it's w- worth noting that the first time through, you don't really know any of these hypocrisies and holes in Tywin's argument because you're not as uh, well versed with his character and you don't know what's coming. Sure. So the first time through, we're just, we're scared for Rob and of Tywin. And that's what makes it so cathartic and exciting when Rob's it works perfectly mm-hmm. and Tywin ends up with his ass hanging out in the wind. <laughs> couple more notes before we move on to the foreshadowing and groundwork. You gotta love Tywin recognizing that Stannis is the true threat. That's the sort of thing that sends the chill <laughs> up the spines of, of, of horrible people like you and me. Although, I am curious as to what, quote, dealing with Stannis at this point looks like in Tywin's mind. What is he exactly talking about there? Because Stannis has not made an overt military move. So is Stannis talking about like an amphibious assault on Dragonstone? That sounds like a terrible idea. How'd that work out for Loras in the Feast for Crows when he was going up against a much smaller garrison than Stannis has in the Game of Thrones?
0: You know, not well. As we as we know, that half of the army that attacked Dragonstone was killed or wounded in the battle, fighting against a skeleton crew that Stannis left behind at Dragonstone before he sailed up to Eastwatch. That's, it's very, very hard to do amphibious assault, And Tywin, yeah, you do kind of wonder what he's thinking about in terms of Stannis. I feel my sense of that is that he kind of sees Stannis as a threat but hasn't worked out the logistics and the tactics of how he would plan to take on Dragonstone. But I also think at the same time that... Tywin makes a conspicuous non-mention, and that non-mention is of Renly Baratheon. He is not considered Renly as a threat, which to me indicates that perhaps he's thinking that Renly and Stannis are going to work together, which,
1: wow. That's a great point. Probably Tywin is thinking of the Baratheons as a united front at this right. point, perhaps under Stannis' banner as war leader. And that so all the South, the Reach and the Stormlands might be in Stannis' coalition. Yep. I never thought of that, but yeah because yeah, Tywin does react with surprise as does Kevon when Renly ends up crowning himself at the end of this book so he, he probably did not see this, the separate factions coming and uh, one more thing to mention props to Tywin as we've been saying for Im- immediately realizing how to manipulate the clans to his advantage I do like that like as soon as the clans walk in you can sense Tywin looked at them and going okay I know I know exactly what you guys want and exactly what will prick your pride right. and I'm going to use that and that's impressive unlike Kevon he keeps his cool clearly Morton is setting that contrast there where Kevon acts like this quivering, outraged colonial <laughs> officer, Like, how dare you interrupt our private meetings? in Thailand? just like, I'm going to be as cool as a cucumber and just keep my calm and deal with these people. That's, you know, I can say nice things. Like, that, you, that we say Tyran's reputation is overstated doesn't mean it, it's completely, com- has no basis whatsoever. He does True. have some skills, but I think it's important to note on reread that we remember how this particular deal actually works out, what happens to the clans after they're done fighting with the Lannisters. When Tywin arrives at King's Landing after the Blackwater, and he's in the height of his power and doesn't need any allies like the clans anymore, they are just driven away heartlessly from the city, Mm -hmm. despite their service and heroism for the Lannister cause. So Tywin Lannister did not, in the end, pay his debts.
0: Yeah. Uh Yeah. I mean what's the, I mean the, if I remember correctly the passage I think at the end of Clash or the start of a Storm of Swords is something to the effect of Shaga came up to the Red Keeper's like hey man fucking pay me and Tywin's like just drove him away with swords and even give him an answer.
1: Yes indeed and that takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork for the chapter. You you did a great job reading that wonderful paragraph in which Martin establishes Tywin physically and in terms of his character in this chapter and it, it struck me we read just exactly how similar this is to the introduction of Stannis and the prologue to A Clash of Kings, which I'm going to read that section too because it's an even better paragraph, I dare say. Oh yeah. Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone and by the grace of the gods, rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb, with a tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather cured in the sun until it was as tough as steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was, though he was not yet five and thirty. Only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. And it's just like all these descriptions of like, you know, hardness and tightness and discipline. Cresson goes on to say that the, Stannis's mouth had always confounded all fools and there was no smiles and no laughter. There, there's such strong parallels here between these two introductory scenes, and I think... You know, of course, the the similarities and differences between Stannis and Tywin. The way the former teeters between becoming the latter and improving on him, that's a major theme of A Storm of Swords. Maybe my favorite through line in A Storm of Swords. But I think you can, by the time you get to Clash of Kings and Martin working on Stannis' character, you can already see him strongly building those parallels by basically rewriting the Tywin intro scene for Stannis.
0: The one thing that distinguishes Stannis from Tywin is that ultimately... He realizes his faults and that he was placing the throne ahead of the defense of his people and putting the cart in front of the horse. And that's good on Stance's part. Tywin is the same character from the introduction we see here in Tyrion Seven all the way through his 11th chapter in the Storm of Swords.
1: Absolutely. But in terms of speaking of Tywin's end and how we build up to that last chapter on the Storm of Swords, there is a, definitely an element in this chapter that pays off to the brutal punchline of Tywin's death. Oh, yeah.
0: So, the in the end, Tywin Lannister did not shit gold from Tyrion's final Storm of Swords chapters. Gets its first reference here in the Game of Thrones, as I read in the synopsis. A fool more foolish than most had once suggested that even Tywin Lannister's shit was flecked with gold. Some men said that man was still alive deep in the bowels of Casterly Rock. So, that line as George R. Martin confirmed in 2001, was intentional setup for Tywin's death. So someone asked him, were circumstances and timing of Tywin's death something you planned for a long time or another case of characters, quote unquote, taking initiative like with Cat? And George responded, that scene was largely written even before A Clash of Kings was published. I, hell, I'd been setting up that Lord Tywin shit's gold line since his very first appearance in A Game of Thrones.
1: And while, we, of course, as we've said, Martin has changed many elements, dropped some plot lines, come up with other ones later on, this dramatic element of the relationship between Tyrion and Tywin and how it was going to pay off and what it would say about both these characters, this is something, as he says in that interview, he seems to have been, had in mind since his very early days oh, yeah. of conceiving of the series. This is something he has understood completely and I think executed pretty much perfectly. Speaking of long setups and payoffs, uh, Tywin mentions Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir very dismissively in passing here as a pair of Ned Stark's afterthoughts. They'll only grow in prominence from here, of course, and given what a thorn they'll be in the Lannister side, it, it just works so well that Tywin un- underestimates them here, just of course, as he does Rob, as you outlined earlier. Yep,
0: Tywin is overconfident, and he displays that overconfidence throughout his arc, and with Lord Beric Dondarrion, who of course exists as a thorn in Tywin's side for the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire, all the way through A Dance of Dragons as the Brothers Without Banners are still hanging Tywin's allies in the form of the phrase. Speaking a little bit more about the Riverlands themselves, Tywin briefly mentions how they took Raven Tree Hall from the Blackwoods while Titus Blackwood was mustered at the Golden Tooth and then at River Run. In Titus Blackwood and Jamie's conversation in A Dance with Dragons, Titus reveals what kind of taking Raven Tree Hall actually meant. "'Your mountain stole my harvest and burned everything he could not carry off. He put my castle to the torch and raped one of my daughters. I will have recompense.'" So Tywin and Kevin's casual recounting of Raventree f- Raven Tree, fell at once, and Lady Went yielded to Harrenhal for want of men to defend it. Sir Gregor burned out the pipers and the brackens. Always, always minimizes the specific type of terror and war crimes that the Lannisters commit in the Riverlands. And it's good as the story has progressed that we get a fuller accounting of the monstrosity of that Lannister war machine.
1: It reveals, as we've been suggesting, how Tywin's policies always lead to blowback. I mean. Tywin will tell Joffrey that you have to serve your enemies steel and fire when they defy you, but then you help them back to their feet when they get on their knees. But if you serve them steel and fire like this, then they might never go to their knees because they hate you that much or because they feel like they have to keep fighting for what they've lost. We're going to see a lot of that when we get to Rob's crowning ceremony at the end of this book. And I think you can definitely see that in terms of the Blackwoods will probably not stay loyal to the Lannisters nope. for long, in large part because of what Tywin and Gregor did to them. And those. Speaking of Tywin actually getting along with these kind of low-class violent guys he hangs around, you, you do get that lovely little line in this chapter where Tyrion's introducing Bronn saying, he's already changed sides twice in the time of have you ought to get along with him famously, <laughs> father. Which again is the, you know a joke that hides a lot of pain and toxicity in Tyrion and Tywin's relationship mm-hmm. right there. But it's, as it turns out, Tyrion's right. Bron and Tywin do get along very well, indeed, come a storm of swords, because Tywin is the one who knights Bronn, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater, and in doing so is able to steal Bronn away from Tyrion, more or less. So as it turns out, they get along much more well than Tyrion would like.
0: You know, I think that's actually, it's funny now that I'm thinking about it. It might be a joke at, at Tywin changing sides during, say, Robert's Rebellion, for instance, where he was originally- That's what
1: I think uh, Tyrion is going for there, yeah. Yeah. The Tywin's a weather vane.
0: Yeah, and of course, Tywin does knight Bron and tries to steal Bronn away, but I mean, there are still moments in A Feast for Crows where Bronn is still somewhat fondly thinking of Tyrion, at least so much as to name his stepson from Lolly's Tyrion. So the relationship with, between Tyrion and Bronn, Tywin tried to break up, but ultimately, I have a feeling that Bron will still play a major role in Tyrion's story going forward.
1: Oh, agreed. For sure. That's a great point. I, I, I love that little mention of Bron's Ron naming his stepson Tyrion, and I, I look forward to seeing their reunion in the books to come for sure. Mm-hmm. And that takes us to our uh, theory and discussion portion of the episode. So, of course, Tyrion never gets to tell Tywin how exactly he intends to convert this veil into a smoking wasteland because <laughs> Shaga, son of Dolph, interrupts by throwing the captain of the guard into the fireplace, as you do. But... What might he have said? How would you convert the veil vale into Mordor, Jeff?
0: <laughs> I know you hate
1: talking about military scenarios, but maybe you'll indulge me. Oh
0: my gosh, I hate it so, so much. I mean, I, why did you even bring that up? I mean, that's—I I hate it.
1: Well, I'm, I'm again, as I've said, a neophyte in such matters. But even even my little brain can comprehend that the clansmen's strategy, as they got armed and maybe trained by the Lannisters, would involve. They're classic guerrilla strikes that they've done before, but more aggressively, probably more of them, and just ramp up a pattern from there. Does that sound somewhere in the
0: ballpark? That sounds pretty accurate. I mean, part of the the escalation of of Insurgency and of Guerrilla Warfare is that you don't always want to stay the Insurgents forever because you're never actually going to win. Eventually, you have to graduate towards large-scale conventional warfare, and we do see that in historically in the form of Mao Zedong and the Chinese Revolution in the 1940s after World War II, where they do graduate from guerrilla warfare to open warfare against the Japanese during World War II themselves, and they carry that war on to the uh, fighting against the Chinese nationalists in the late 1940s. So, how do you escalate from guerrilla strikes? So glad you asked. Allow me to introduce you to two of the greatest practitioners of guerrilla warfare in human history, Che Guevara and Ronald Reagan.
1: <laughs> so happy to share a sentence together. I have no doubt.
0: So Che once said, "Why does the guerrilla war? Why does the guerrilla warfare fighter fight? He must. We must come to the inevitable conclusion that the guerrilla fighter is a social reformer. That he takes up arms, responding to the anger protests of the people against their oppressors, and that he fights in order to change the social system that keeps all his unarmed brothers in ignominy and misery."
1: And that's and that's why every
0: college student has a shirt with his face on. Absolutely right. All, all sold by. Uh, by by Nike. But I I, I I digress. So yeah, the the Mount Klansmen do work kind of broadly in the form of an oppressed people and, and social group. Now, they're not necessarily reformers. You don't get the sense that Shaga son of Dolph, has this idea of tax reform and land re- redistribution necessarily.
1: <laughs> Probably not. I do like that, you know, Timit, son of Timit, is in charge through self-sacrifice, which is not why a lot of the Westerosi lords are in charge. So there is, there is definitely... A better model of leadership, a better form of governments, but yeah you don't get the sense that the mountain clansmen are especially interested in social reforms on a a more kind of broad or policy based level
0: right i mean they they have a legitimate grievance against the vale lords and the vale, and the knights of the vale for oppressing them and repressing them and forcing them away from the good fertile ground, as I talked about in the synopsis, but at the same time they're they're not necessarily. They don't have some sort of grand political revolutionary vision in mind. So in a bad spot, when you're in a guerrilla warfare situation and setting, you always, always want to get a bigger power on your side to supply you with weapons and training. Now, we saw that in the form of Mao when the Soviets began supplying them with lots and lots of munitions. The United States did as well during World War Two that was carried on into the war against the Chinese nationalists. But we also see that in the form of Ronald Reagan and the Afghan Mujahideen and the Nicaraguan Contras versus the Soviet Union slash this, the Nicaraguan Sandinistas in the 1980s and the idea of the Reagan doctrine of rolling back communism. So the, the idea behind that was to give the Mujahideen Stinger missiles so they can shoot down Soviet helicopters that were flying around. So the idea in A Song of Ice and Fire, though, is to arm the badly outgunned, outsorted Klansmen and put them in on something resembling a military par, with the Knights of the Vale, so that's kind of what you're looking at here. That Tyrion and George R. Martin, for that matter, as the kind of author of this series, probably has in mind something resembling the communist revolutions in years past, as well as the more recent in his mind, because of course A Game of Thrones was written in the 1990s of Reagan arming the Mujahideen and the Contras. So that seems to be something that George is using here, and having that, and having that kind of view of current events helps to definitely influence and help to augment our enjoyment of A Song of Ice and Fire?
1: For sure. I, I think it's always important to keep in mind that Martin is drawing not from medieval history or from medieval fantasy, but also modern 20th century conflicts. He puts a lot of that. We're going to talk about that a lot when we get to the wider scale devastation of the Riverlands river and a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great point that Martin is probably drawing from the headlines here when it comes to guerrilla warfare as part of the Cold War, especially as a, a lefty leading dude himself, one of the big <laughs> Left, lefty grievances against Reagan was the Iran-Contra scandal and all the kind of areas that touched on, including supporting this particular side in the war in Central America. So I think the, the cynicism with which Martin is writing this dynamic about Tyrion wanting to use the Klansmen and, and wreck their personal political system just for his own ends, I think that reflects Martin's overall perspective on these, these conflicts and probably on the Cold War as yep. a whole. So another question of mine as as a neophyte is, How do you deal with the primary military strength of the veil, which are the knights, especially en masse in a cavalry charge, which could could just devastate even the well-armed clansmen? So do you try to lure them into a trap? And if so, how do you do that?
0: I I mean, for for me, as I was kind of thinking through this, I think the fundamental problem with conquering the veil is that there's really – I mean, there's two ways in and out. You can use the sea. The clansmen don't have any ships, so that's not available to them. So the only way they can get access to the Vale itself is through the Bloody Gate. You have to overwhelm the defenders there, get the gate open, and proceed into the flat ground of the mountain. And then it gets hard. Because any mass <laughs> army of the clansmen would meet the heavy horse of the Vale Knights on open ground. And the clansmen lose that battle every single time. So, how do you mitigate that advantage that the Vale Knights have? And the way you mitigate that? is to adapt the tactics of a man by the name of Genghis Khan. So, the Mongols in Genghis Khan were very, very famous for their idea of the feigned retreat. And that is where their force would confront an enemy army, and then they would wheel around to pretend that they were retreating after first contact with the enemy, and they would start riding the hell away. Their enemies would pursue, and then at an ideal terrain, an ideal situation, the Mongols would wheel their army back around as the enemy extended their line too far forward, or overexpose their position away from their supply lines, and then perhaps then you spring up a hidden force to surround your enemies and destroy them. So how does General Timot, son of Timot, do this with the Veil? Well, first, you do have to take the Bloody Gate. That's There's no ands or buts about it. That's gonna be the hard part there. That's the hard task, though, in my scenario, except, except, as we've learned from the Elaine, the Winner sample chapter, quote, the competitors came from all over the Vale, and she's talking about the turning of the Wing Knight here. From the mountain valleys and the coast, from Gulltown, and the Bloody Gate. So we're seeing a scenario here where the Bloody Gate may be a bit undermanned and might be a bit easier to overwhelm than what we what 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 would normally be the circumstance. So then if I'm timid, I push into the... So if I, t- I take the bloody gate, I'm timid. I push a small but significant portion of my army forward into the valley very, very, very loudly. Get the Knights of the Vale all up in a froth to mount up and confront us. And then upon first contact, Van retreat back to the bloody gate with the vain, arrogant Knights of the Vale in pursuit. And at or near the Bloody Gate itself, with the mountains all around, force the Vale Knights into the constricted terrain, cut off their retreat from the rear, and massacre the knights in mass in that constricted terrain around the mountains and the Bloody Gate itself. I just won the war for the Vale.
1: Well done, sir. <laughs> that fits so well with what we know about the Vale Knights, like we saw Sir Donald Wainwood and Catelyn Six all in the lather to go up and take the fight to the Clansmen. So I'm sure there are a lot of likes who would think like that. Once you made, took first blood, like, oh, there, there's our chance to get the clans. We got to get our revenge on them, and then then the massacre hits. So I could I could absolutely see that happening. So in terms of the other power bases of the Vale, obviously the Eyrie, you just have to settle in for a long, potentially years long siege, yep. as, as Tyrion said when. Our chapter, Tyrion and said in their chapters in the Vale, fighting your way up that mountain is just a ridiculous, impossible notion. But the other big power base in the Vale is, of course, Goldtown, yep. the city in the Vale, a city we haven't visited yet in A Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe we will as part of Sansa's exit from the Vale. I hope so. It would be nice to see it. Yeah. But uh, what do you what do you do about Goldtown?
0: I mean, you, you have to take and seize and hold Goldtown. And the reason why you want to do that is that it, if you close out the Bloody Gate itself, it is the economic, basically, bloodline through the Vale itself. With the valley in chaos, the Vale needs to rely on food imports to stay afloat and stay alive. So you want to hold this town, and if you can't hold it, you well, know, I mean, this kind of sounds very almost Taiwanese, but you want to sack the town and ensure that it can't sustain large imports of food and supplies into it itself. I mean, that's very, I don't know, pessimistic <laughs> at the very least. But that's kind of what you would want. Want to do kind of this is
1: Tyrion, This is Tyrion's strategy, and we are saying that he's a lot like Tywin under the surface. So it's not that surprising that he might imitate Dad if he was ever actually able
0: to pull this this battle plan off. Yeah, that's very very true. But I have questions for you too. Since we, so since I've already Whoa. I've already won the veil for for Tyrion essentially. I mean, we still have to take the Eerie at some point, but. You know, at some point they would have to surrender or all starve to death up in the Eyrie, and then after that we can just walk in and and sit the sit the throne there, the wherewood throne up on the in the Eyrie. So my question for you is, questions for you are more on the political side. So what would Tyrion do with the veil vale afterwards? After he takes the Eyrie, after town is burned to the ground, does you know this burning of town and sacking of all of and killing all these peasants? Does it reflect some sort of desire to kind of? Place himself in a position of authority and power, because, like we talked about at significant length, he's never going to hold Castle Rock. Is this what Tyrion is angling for ultimately, with sending the Mountain clansmen up against the Vale? And what's the ultimate end game for Tyrion in this scenario?
1: I think that's a great point. This is the ultimate second son diaspora, right? When Tyrion realizes he's not going to inherit his father's house, he's going to have to come up with his own way of life and his own way of supporting himself once once jamie gets the rock. He's, he's got to carve out his own space. I think we see versions of that, like with Theon wanting to carve out Casterly Rock as his own kingdom. And he makes that proposal to Balin Grey join Clash of Kings or with the Freys, scattering everywhere after the Red Wedding, trying to grab their own little piece of the pie so they don't have to take part in the, the bloodletting that <laughs> will inevitably happen in the twins once Walder finally dies. And... Uh, I think that fits this chapter so well, both with the kind of tragic relationship between Tyrion and Tywin, that Tyrion would realize at some level that he's never going to get his father's approval and has to find his own space away from him and away from his family that hates him. But it also just fits those overall themes that is Tyrion willing to reduce the Veil to a smoking wasteland for that reason? Like the, the, the dysfunction within House Lannister has been weaponized so horribly that it's now going to destroy one of the seven kingdoms of Westeros. That again gets at what we've been saying, that... The toxic dynamics within House Lannister have these ripple effects on the whole of Westeros because of how powerful the Lannisters are.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, Tyrion here is in a situation where he's very—he's thinking very similar to Tywin. He's thinking about reducing the Vale to a smoking wasteland the same way that Tywin reduced Castamere and Tarbeck Hall to, smoke, to smoking wastelands. Now the rains weep Auras Hall and not a soul to weep. It could be the same situation with the with the Vale of Arryn, where now the rain now I, I can't do the same alliteration in the same way that Martin does his fantastic uh, lyric construction for the reigns of Castamir. But you can imagine a similar song being written about the Vale if Tyrion gets his way. Now I, I think when we're talking about this alternate universe in this scenario, I, I think ultimately I, I would come down to the side that Tyrion probably won't come back to the Vale in A Song of Ice and Fire. His his arc and his narrative thrust that we see at least through a Dance of Dragons and onto the Winds of Winter Sample chapters is to return to the Westerlands and seize Casterly Rock itself. And it's seemingly Martin has embedded a fair amount of foreshadowing that Tyrion is going to infiltrate Casterly Rock using the sewers as we talked about in previous episodes.
1: But I think this is set up for that though because he's going to be using the Second Sons in the same way he's using the Clansmen oh, here. yeah. And the Tyrion we see later in the series has gotten to the point where that strategy he's employing that against his enemies, but his own lands, his own people, his his own castle, the castle he could never inherit so he's going to destroy it. And I think it perfectly reflects uh, how Tyrion's arc descends and how in the end he ends up this kind of furious reflection of the father he hates. Yeah on that optimistic (laughs) note I think that about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Tyrion 7 so thank you so much for listening everybody as always we appreciate your ears and your support
0: absolutely as always please rate and review us on iTunes Google Play SoundCloud Podbean anywhere and everywhere you can find your podcasts as always check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Nautocast ASOAF, where our most recent Patreon episode all about our predictions for Game of Thrones season 8 is out for all of our $5 and above patrons
1: check us out on Twitter at Shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at
0: Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. So join us next week
1: for Sansa Five, in which Sansa Stark pleads with the newly crowned king for mercy for her father, only for that king. Jeff, to cruelly refuse her. Jeff, wait, why must you hate? Wait, me? Me? I, I, I didn't... Yeah. K- uh, well. King Jeffrey Baratheon. We've been reading about him all book. I don't know why you're so
0: confused. You are such an asshole. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: True. I am. I am. Nah. Sansa chapters always bring out the best of us.
0: Ah, so. uh, yes. That is going to be so much fun. No, I'm actually serious. So I, I, I really... um, I've been, I've been reading and rereading the Sansa chapter in preparation for this episode. And I am very excited to talk about how I personally wrong... Sansa Stark and how I personally betray Sansa Stark in the next chapter. Well, not we set up the betrayal for the, in the next chapter is how I do it. I set up the betrayal in the next chapter and then I fulfill it in Arya's final chapter in the Game of Thrones.
1: You're just a dark dirty bird that way, Jeffrey Hartline. That's what I do. So uh I look forward to that and take care everybody. See you next week. Bye.